Hello, and welcome to the History in Today podcast. This week, Katie and I talked to State Congresswoman-elect Jennifer Leeper and got some valuable insights into what it's like to run for office and serve in the public sphere. We then shift to election history, talking about a variety of America's most pivotal election years and what we can learn from them. I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's get right into it. Okay, so welcome to the show, uh, Connecticut Congresswoman-elect Jennifer Leeper. Uh, we are very, very appreciative to have you here, and um, thank you for coming again. So uh, to get started, uh, what's your uh, what's your origin story in politics? Uh, well, thank you guys for having me on. I'm thrilled to be here. I had made talking with young people really a centerpiece of my campaign, so I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to continue to engage more uh, young people. I think it's really crucial to bringing new voices on board. So thanks for this opportunity. Uh, I get that question a lot. Why, why would you do this? Uh, I have my, my background is in public policy. I got my master's in public policy at the University of Chicago and truly never thought about going into politics. Politics felt really far away from policy work, which was, you know, running regressions and a lot of econometrics to find marginal benefit to craft better policies. And I was doing policy and data analysis for the Connecticut State Department of Ed in 2016 when Donald Trump was elected. And I just really realized we need more fresh voices. We need a new generation of leaders. And I had skills that I thought I could be putting to better use for my community. So in 2017, I ran for the Board of Education here in Fairfield and I've loved serving in that capacity. And, you know, our state has a lot of really serious and complex issues. And listening to state representatives constantly blaming Democrats for all of uh, Connecticut's challenges and talking about wasteful government spending as, as somehow like the root of, of all of our ills was really frustrating to me. It's so much more complex than that. You know, Connecticut faces a 70 years in the making unfunded pension liability crisis, which is really the root of all of our uh, fiscal challenges, which there are many and they are complex. And it's certainly not about wasteful government spending. That could be happening on the margins and we should root it out. Nobody's on the side of wasteful government spending, but it's not the core reason Connecticut is where it is. And I just thought we deserve a more honest politics and some courage. You know, there are real challenges and, and people deserve to be told the truth about them rather than spinning an issue for, for political gain. I, I think like the tolls issue is a perfect example of that. Uh, we're two years away from our um, special transportation fund being insolvent. Connecticut desperately needs to maintain our infrastructure that allows us to have the proximity to New York City that ensures our property values and a vast swath of jobs. Tolls are traditionally a Republican proposal. They're a user fee. Every single state down the 95 corridor has tolls except Connecticut. And yes, again, this is a complex issue. We took them out for safety reasons like three decades ago after a horrible accident. Tolls don't look like that anymore. We have the technology to charge in-state drivers less. We have the technology to charge drivers who live in a town with a gantry less. And the sad fact is, like either way we pay, 
we pay for whatever transportation infrastructure improvements we need. So either we pay 100% plus interest if we're going to bond it, which was the Republican proposal, or we could get 30% from out-of-state drivers. That was like the rough estimate of what it would be. And at least have an ongoing stream revenue stream because we're going to continue to need to make improvements. And I don't foresee a future where anyone is going to dare to bring tolls up again because it became a political wedge where people thought you could they could win votes by being against it. And that's why they got the slogan, vote for tolls, lose at the polls. And and you know what? They're were very few people as a part of that movement, but they were very loud and scared a lot of folks. And I think it's an example where there wasn't the political courage we needed as a state. You know, being a leader is hard and making tough decisions and communicating why you're making those decisions to your constituents. And I think we often are losing that. And instead we have leaders who just want to please everybody. And not to say that I, I, that's important, you know, you're, you're sent to Hartford to represent your constituents, but, but sometimes you also have to bring folks along with you on a, on a challenging idea. Um, that's just one example. I just found there are a lot of things that were frustrating. We could be doing better. We could be working to solutions and instead anything that is challenging got whipped up into a political frenzy and became a wedge issue. And so then nothing happens and we get left in the status quo. And that's why Connecticut continues to be the land of steady habits. And I don't know that that's serving us. Yeah, so I have a question for you. Um, You're talking about the importance of having, you know, courage in the political setting and also like the importance of transparency you alluded to as well. Um, Along with those qualities, which are very important to have, how, how would you describe more so your, your leadership style and approach to tackling these very complex issues? And in terms of like working for solutions, like do you, do you have like a specific like approach to how you like, like what does the process to addressing those concerns look like, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like, is it, is it a complex process? Like, or do you have, you know, different strategies to attack different problems? Like, I would just like an idea of how that looks. So the way in which I typically like to work is to get the data on an issue because so often people have very, very strong feelings about an issue and the data might not support those feelings. Um, You know, people have this really entrenched belief that certain types of development will lower their property values. There's not really data to support that. And I think having some data to ground a discussion is really helpful. Then I think there's no shortcut. You've got to listen. And your data doesn't ne- doesn't change people's minds on its own. Uh, there's a lot of research to say that actually when you confront people who have a strong belief with facts, all they do is actually dig in deeper. So it's it's a dance of listening and building relationships building bridges. I'm, I'm a big believer in like bringing people in. And there's no shortcut to that other than building trust. And I really view trust as the centerpiece for everything we do. And there has been a long erosion of trust in the public sector. And, you know, understandably, people are understandably cynical and skeptical of, of their government. I think 
they can likely point to instances where their government let them down or their representatives let them down. And um, there's just an erosion of trust. And I think also when, when elected officials have spent so much time trying to get wins, political wins instead of solutions, people think the system's entirely broken. And, um, you know, I sort of felt that way too. That's why I ran. We need people who care more about solutions than political wins. And there's no shortcut to building trust. It's kind of just being there, showing up, listening, being open-minded. And I think especially right now, living in the midst of a pandemic, people's anxieties and their stresses are higher than they've likely ever been. This doesn't bring out the best in any of us. And so leading with like compassion and, and believing people when they tell you where they're at and not doubting their motives, I think is really important. We had um, just last week, a group of parents rally on the town green here in Fairfield for full reopen of schools. I'm sympathetic to their cause. I also have a first grader and a four-year-old, and this is really, really challenging. And people are consumed with worry for their kids and how they're managing work and having their kids home all day. And I think we just, and, and, and it doesn't benefit us to criticize those folks. We need to find ways that we could be doing better and also like give them a place to air their concerns. Um, but again, like there's no cure-all. And, and I think approaching people with compassion, particularly right now, is, is part of building those bridges, establishing some trust. And it doesn't mean like you're gonna always agree. I always tell people that. I'm likely to make decisions you won't agree with, but I'm gonna do my best to communicate honestly, honestly with you and transparently with you why I made those decisions so that you can understand. And I hope that that is helpful when, when we get to tough decision-making where people might not always agree. That makes sense. Yeah, I definitely I definitely think that, uh, I, I heard about that, that kind of uh, protest on the green and I, you know, I had my opinions about, you know, as somebody as both of us um, want to be teachers in the future. And we are, you know, very, very happy that we don't have to deal with <laughs> teaching in COVID right now. But um, You should be grateful. It's never been harder. I feel for our teachers every day. Yeah, yeah um, my, my mom is a school nurse in Guilford. And so I've I've been able to see sort of both sides of it. Like I, I know um, the concerns that, you know, revolve around that, but then there's also from like her, her, pers her perspective as the person who's really managing like the cases and what's happening and, you know, tracking kids who are absent. Why are they absent? You know, why, why didn't they show up to their virtual class? Why didn't they show up to their, to their in-person one when they're in person, you know? And it's, you know, she's told me over and over again, like, I understand the concerns, but, you know, but in my position, you know, knowing what we've dealt with, like, there's just no, no, like, clear-cut way to go fully back. Like, we have to stay safe, you know, so it, it, I feel like also another part of it is, is being transparent about why that isn't an option as well. 
Absolutely. And, you know, people have different assessments of risk. Mm -hmm. Some people think that the risk of their child not being at school is greater than the risk of them contracting COVID. And that's their risk assessment. Like, you're not going to convince them that they're wrong. That is their personal assessment of what type of risk they're comfortable taking. Mm -hmm. Um, The thing is that when you're butting up against lots of people with different risk profiles, um, you're not all going to agree on what is the appropriate level of risk to take. And teachers face different consequences if they get COVID likely than our young kids do, for example. And so they have a different assessment of risk. And those are really challenging types of conversations to have, and especially challenging to have them in a way where you're not pitting groups of people against each other. We don't want to live in a world where we have teachers versus parents. That we should, we're all on the same page, which is trying to do the best for our kids. Um, but again, emotions and anxieties are really high. Frustrations are really high. And it doesn't always bring out the best in us. That's that's definitely true. <laughs> Especially in COVID, the anxiety has been through the roof. Absolutely. But uh, so I wanted to ask, um, shifting back to uh, the the election specifically, um, we went through four. I mean, I'm sure you did too, because you know, in the in the general federal election, you are you know a civilian like we are. Uh, but what is it? What is it like watching returns as a candidate? Because you know, we just kind of have our phones out looking to see you know the results. But obviously, it seems like it must be very different on the other side. Uh, yeah, you know, it's the culminating event of in the in my race, basically a year's worth of work because there was a special election in January um, where I lost by seventy nine votes. And we knew it was going to be a really different uh, set of voters out for the presidential than there were for a small down ballot special election in the middle of January. That doesn't bring out a lot of voters. We had 29% voter turnout. So knowing it was so close with low voter turnout, traditionally Democrats do better at when there's higher turnout. So we thought it was likely we would have the wind at our back. That was all before the pandemic. And uh, in our community, Donald Trump is not popular. Mm-hmm. Even though we're traditionally a Republican community, we are much more um, a pre-Donald Trump Republican type of community, I would say, on average. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have a, lo- a huge influx of New Yorkers who moved in, who skew Democratic. We had the outpouring of, young, of uh, Gen Z, which skews democratic and then we also had a lot of republicans who felt like their party abandoned them that it no longer represented the values that were traditionally republican values in their eyes and they were casting sort of like a protest vote voting democratic down the down ticket to to communicate to their party this can never happen again we had somebody come in to the democratic town committee headquarters and 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 tell us that we had um, somebody who changed their party's affiliation calling on behalf of our candidates. Um, I think those were three also big forces, but I really did my best to run a campaign on solutions. I had like 10 policy pages on my website. I tried really hard to practice what I preached, which was policy over politics, like tell people what you want to get done for them. So all to say, it was a lot of work leading up to election night. And 
you know, I was out at the polls from 6 a.m. to 7 p.m. Basically, I, I went home. It was freezing. Took a shower to wait for the um, polls to close at eight and start to watch the results come in. And so the way it works is that every campaign will have somebody at each polling place to get, it's like an actual receipt, like looks like it's from a cash register that comes out of the ballot box after all of the ballots have been submitted and tells you line by line, how many ballots, you, how many votes you got. So we had at every polling place, one for in-person, same day in-person voting and one for the absentee ballots that had been um, submitted earlier. The way that works is that you could like mail them back to the town clerk or drop them in the ballot box. And then the town clerk in Fairfield anyways, sent each of those back out to the districts that they were cast from. So that instead of having like one central uh, machine telling all the votes, you were out at all of the polling places telling those votes. So you're waiting from every polling place for two numbers. So in my case, I have four polling places, so I needed eight numbers. And um, they were coming in really slow. And we knew that we had likely a vast majority of those early votes. And 35% of the district had voted early. So that's a lot of votes. And that the same day votes were going to skew Republican. I don't know if you guys heard at the national level about the Red Mirage. Um, but we had that here in Fairfield too. So all the in-person uh, votes, I lost all four districts oh, because wow. so many Democrats voted early. And so then as we're getting all of the early vote number, the absentee ballot numbers, I won every polling place in the end because we had such a majority of those early votes. It was really interesting. And it was... Um, exciting, anxiety producing, because you were like, um, is it going to be enough of these votes that were cast absentee to offset, you know, the same day loss? And, you know, for all four places it was. And back in January, I had won three out of four districts and I had lost Southport. Southport is traditionally a Republican stronghold in the community. And this year I uh, won even Southport, which really felt like a huge victory. Because it's a harder place to make inroads, um, and we really did our best to to have a Southport-specific strategy this time. And it seems like it worked. <laughs> That's great. That really, you know, emphasizes the whole trust and kind of working for everybody thing that you got you know, votes from everywhere in the district. I know. I think I I'm excited about it. Although you know what they say, you're never more popular than the day you're elected. So there's a lot of work to get done. So I, I have a question just because like, I'm not, not familiar with the area, but um, how, how, did it, how did it feel to, or how did, what was the difference in, um, you know, reception from the election that was in January to the election that just happened. Um, what sort of factors, you, you alluded to it, but like maybe speak more to it, what sort of factors led like more directly to um, that different that different result? Um, and and like what, what in general did it feel like to have that, you know, coming off of a loss, but then, you know, winning all four areas? like. 
how did that feel like what what was the sort of emotional journey for you what was the what what was like the the strategy like how how is it going to motivate you moving forward as you just mentioned like you're most popular when you're elected um yeah so uh to the first part of that question the difference between the special and now so the special we knew it's only a really small segment of voters who come out for a special election and we kind of have the data to know who those people are people who always vote so we really targeted those always voters. Um, my plan had been, and just to say for the special, I knocked doors for like four hours at a minimum a day, every single day between the day after Thanksgiving and January 14th, except for New Year's Day and Christmas Day. Wow. So it was an unbelievable amount of work in a really truncated timeline and um but also a ton of energy it was the only election there was only three in the state so we had just everybody from around the state showing up knocking doors and this is pre-pandemic so things were easier uh in that regard to to contact voters we had a real solid field plan where we were just doing direct voter contact every day and I think that is truly why I was able to win this time. We did a lot of really good legwork back in January that I think continued to pay off now. People knew who I was. Thousands of people had talked with me at um, their doors, on the phones. We had a lot of different meet and greet type of events. And so I feel like that was sort of, quote, money in the bank for this campaign. Then we broadened out who we were targeting for this campaign to less frequent voters, people who only come out and vote in, in a presidential election, young first-time voters, newly, newly registered voters, um, and everybody in between. But my goal had really been to knock on every single door. And I was going to start in April and focus on those people who likely don't hear from their elected officials as often. It's a really interesting and problematic cycle when elected officials talk to frequent voters, but because those voters hear from them, they keep voting. So it works in the opposite. Like if you don't hear from your elected officials, you don't vote, and then your elected officials don't reach out to you because you don't vote. So I really wanna break that cycle. And then the pandemic kind of challenged that. Um, we did our best to include like almost never voters, I would say. Not, you know, that is how Donald Trump won. He reached out and converted never voters. That is a very laborious enterprise. And we couldn't quite do that because of the pandemic, but I really hope to do that going forward. Um, we had to also think really creatively about how we were gonna engage with people for this time around running a campaign in a pandemic. And that a campaign is actually also a content generator. You need to be producing content for people to engage with. If you can't be at their doors, we know people don't like to talk on the phone. You need to be doing something that's engaging for them to interact with. So I, um, like I alluded to earlier, started this group I called Student Voices, and I wanted to hear from our young people. I wanted to hear from them what their top issues and concerns were, what they wish their leaders talked about more, and what problems they wanted to see solved. And so we started this group in June, 
we would meet for basically two hour Zooms. We had like 25, 30 young people from high school students to recent college grads every week. And then we came up with four policy areas that, that were the priority areas. They were education, the environment, gun violence prevention, and mental health. And then we broke out into policy committees and our young people led them. But I got um, sort of air, content area experts in each of the four to help advise. And we came up with real policy proposals for each of those areas. And then those groups met every week to come up with their policies and do the research and draft something. And that is a lot of what informed the information on my website under those areas. And, and we were able to put out a lot of content because of that for people to engage with. And it felt very consistent with my goal of proposing solutions and, and able to bring in young people. I, I say this all the time, but I really view our role as adults, as stewards for the world, for our young people to inherit. And our job is to ensure that there is a better world for you guys to inherit, not a worse world. And um, that means your voices need to be central to those types of conversations and those decision-making processes so that we are responsible stewards for you. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's very appreciated because uh, we, need, we need as much help as, we're, as we can get. Yes, um, absolutely. So you mentioned earlier that uh, you were, you've been on the, uh, the Board of Ed for, since 2017. And um, you mentioned the student voices. And I wanted to know, do you think that um, being on the Board of Ed and being involved in the education of Fairfield's children for the last three or four years, uh, do you think that has kind of influenced you and kind of uh, grown, I guess, grown you into, into, into how you think about being a candidate for, the, for Hartford? Do you think you kind of took some of what you learned in, on the Board of Ed and moved that into what you want to do now? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I loved serving on the Board of Ed. And, you know, Fairfield is a really large school district. We have 10,000 students, nearly 10,000 students. We have 18 facilities. Um, it's, it's a big, complex, expensive uh, organization to run. So it's been great to be on the inside learning all the ins and outs of things and i think it's been a really great reminder nothing nothing is as simple as it seems and it's been a great exercise in learning about budgets which are so important in everything we do and being able to communicate with people about our budgets i can't tell you how many times people will say well board of ed gets you know so much money, X percent of the town budget, it's what are we even getting for it? And being able to come back and say, actually, you know, we rank now, I think the 18th wealthiest town in Connecticut, our per pupil expenditure ranks 89th. We are an extremely efficient school district. People really don't know that because why, why would they? We haven't done a good job communicating it. And, and I founded like the finance committee, because I think often Democrats in particular are really bad at leading with economic messages. And the vast majority of time, the economics and our values 
are in sync. But because we leave the economics out of the, the conversation or out of the messaging or we don't lead with it, people are left with the assumption Democrats don't care about the economics. And I think that is fundamentally untrue. But Democrats have really failed in this way. And so I've also learned through the Board of Ed, founding the Finance Committee, helping the community trust that we care a lot about being responsible stewards of their tax dollars. And we are going to constantly be evaluating how efficiently we're running our district, where we could be finding efficiencies, where we could be partnering with the town um, for contracts, for plowing, for example, um, for, for landscaping maintenance, all of those things that are actually very expensive. And, and where we don't partner for HR, for example, and why? Because actually it's, it's not more efficient. It would be more costly because they're both specialized, whatever. But I think being able to speak to those nuances helps people trust that you've done your due diligence, that you care, and you are invested in making sure their money is spent wisely. There's a reason that wasteful government spending message is as successful as it is. People are eager to believe it mm -hmm. because nobody is countering it with how they are being responsible stewards. So, and, and truthfully, that's a harder message. Uh, Democrats are awful at messaging. We often are too far in the weeds and we get out by a simple message like wasteful government spending. And so we've got to do a better job of, of talking with people about those types of issues. But all to say, I learned a lot about that uh, on the Board of Ed. And I think it was an incredibly valuable experience to bring to higher office and to running a, a larger campaign. Awesome. Yeah, I definitely... Uh... You know, I think you see a lot of those people that say they're they're, they're socially liberal and, and fiscally conservative, largely because they're kind of afraid of, you know, they have really don't know. I think a lot of them don't really even look into what the democratic economic policy is because they don't really, you know, they hear a very loud voice on one side. But I definitely, yeah, I think talking about that more would be <laughs> great for getting voters and actually making trust in the community. That's the, that's the hope. Um, so, so I have a, I have a question. Um, what, what has your experience been like in the political sphere as a woman? Like what sort of challenges have you faced? Um, what advice would you give to women in particular who are, who are looking to enter the political sphere? I know that, I know that politics, you know, is, tends to be rough on women, um, but you seem to be doing a great job at tackling it. So any advice you can give, I, I think our viewers would really appreciate. There's a really big difference. I have to tell you, in no sector I've ever worked in have I confronted the misogyny I have in politics. Um, just inherent. You know, I think even the outcome of 2016 or that, that election showed America exactly how inherent misogyny is. In, in all of us. People love to say, well, I have a mother, I have a daughter, I have a sister. But then they say something incredibly, you know, uh, stereotypical or biased against women. Um, I had a real uphill battle. You know, my opponent was this like all American good guy. And he is, you know, we were very friendly before we ran against each other. With a, he has a beautiful family and he's a lawyer and he is the idea of what people trust. 
Um, his campaign was really centered around the concept, like, I'm a nice guy. And that is not a message that works for a woman. Like, I'm a nice lady. Like, nobody cares. <laughs> and, you know, he would often say, I'm a good dad. I'm a PTA dad. That is just the bare minimum point of entry for a woman. There is no future if you are not already those things. And you better not try to brag about them because what kind of mom would do that? Like, and so that's just the starting point, which is another reason why I ran my campaign like just deeply embedded in substance because I couldn't compete on those other things. Nobody was ever going to look at the two of us and just inherently trust me more. That's not the, the world we live in. So I had to prove to them I know what I was talking about. I had ideas that were worthy of exploration and I was going to share them with them and transparently. So I was constantly writing things for the current, for the patch, for the citizen, um, sharing ideas about really challenging and complex issues, putting them on my website, having policy pages for every, you know, hot topic on my website that I could direct people to so they didn't feel like my ideas were secret, like they're out there. Um, and then just you've got to work twice as hard. And, and I don't want to say that really I work twice as hard as my opponent because he worked incredibly hard also. Um, there's just not really another path. And I also think there's been a lot of research and coverage of the consequences of women making mistakes versus men making mistakes. And I think women can't afford to make mistakes. So you've got to be really thoughtful and purposeful with, with everything you do. It's a lot of pressure. I'm not going to lie. It's a lot of pressure. But I also think it's really important work because it won't become more acceptable for women to make mistakes without more women out there doing the work, making mistakes and recovering from them. So we need people paving those paths so that there are more entry points for women. But it's tough, you know, you really have to um, dance on a knife's edge of competence, but not being a know-it-all and looking professional, but not stuffy and being friendly and open, but and, and bubbly, but not flaky. Like there are a lot of these lines that you kind of have to find the exact sweet spot. Not to say that I did, I'm sure I didn't, but I feel like all women running for public office. And I would think it would similar in the corporate world. You're very aware of, of those expectations. That's, <laughs> that's not that awesome. Sorry, that's sort of depressing. <laughs> no worries. Yeah, that's, that's um, you know, an expected answer. Um, yeah. I, I think that, that you're absolutely right in the sense of of the the threshold for making mistakes with women versus men um you know there there's a totally different standard um so definitely agree with that yeah and it was really interesting as a mom also if i didn't have my kids i was like some mom who abandoned her children and then if i had my kids featured i was using my kids so it was really an impossible balance there so you know with things like that you just have to end up doing what feels right for you Mm -hmm. And I'm a, I'm a mom of young kids. Like they are central to my life. They are a huge part of why I ran. 
so they're around like they're a part they're a part of it um i don't like bring them to the doors with me or to events but like i share photos of my kids they're when i'm not working i'm momming and so you know some things like that you just have to be authentic to what is you and be prepared to talk about it if you're asked but um that parenting piece is is definitely different for men and women if as a dad if you do things with your kids you you are a great dad right because the, the baseline is that moms do that stuff so if dads are also doing it they get credit for that um moms don't really have that <laughs> yeah well uh i do think that you know i'm obviously not going to say that this is you know the solution but it is it is nice to see that uh i believe um uh, politics I, I'm, not, I'm not sure about um, what you call it, local politics, but I know that uh, the House of Representatives has the most the most women ever, which is nice to see. Uh, but obviously, there's a lot more to go. Um, do you guys think that? Because um, I know uh, Katie too has some experience with uh, uh, University of Connecticut politics, but um, more specifically, you uh, do you feel that it's gotten a little easier recently, or do you feel that it's just kind of yeah, there's more people, but it's progress isn't being made. Uh, I, I think progress know. is being made. I think progress is being made every day. That's awesome. I I really do. I think the wider diversity of voices that are represented is is impactful in ways we don't even necessarily realize. Generally, we all live in quite segregated communities. Um, even, even when we're in a diverse community, we self-segregate. And so we often hear voices that just mirror our own. Mm -hmm. And so having more voices at the table, sharing publicly different viewpoints is, is incredibly meaningful progress. That's, that, that's good to hear that, you know, it, it's, you know, we have some honestly, the depressing, depressing truths that we have to confront and deal with, but it's, it's nice to see that there's a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. You know, I think it's a baby step, Definitely. but it's a really important one and progress won't be made without it. So I think it's a really important, uh, baby step and not speaking just about women. Although I think that's important. I think, um, diversity across the board, more, more minorities, um, and different ages, different generations of people. We've had really different experiences based on our generation. You know, I always, I'm a millennial. I, people think that I'm, I'm, millennials are your age, I think. You know, millennials are turning 40 and we came of age in a recession and we have had debilitating student loan debt. We couldn't like launch what I think boomers think of as the American dream for an extra like 10 years because we were, um, suffocating under student loan debts. Our lives are just, you know, really different. Um, and I think being able to share those differences is important because when we don't have those voices represented, people make assumptions. And that's where there's a lot of danger in that. So uh, shifting a little bit away from the, the local the, the local sphere and more onto the uh, onto the national sphere. I've seen you posting recently a little bit about uh, Georgia, and I think you know a lot of us that are politically minded have been kind of thinking about it recently. Whether it was watching it turn blue very very slowly, you know, point one percent up and up and up on the Associated Press poll, 
or uh, or otherwise. I think now we've noticed that there are there are two two runoffs that are happening on January fifth between um, Warnock and Luffler and uh, Ossoff and Purdue. And uh, I think you know a lot of people in Connecticut feel very very far away from Georgia. It's this you know my thousands of miles away place that you know the, the fate of the Senate is is hanging on. And uh, as someone that has a lot of influence in Connecticut politics as as a, as a politician, uh, I, I would like to ask your opinion on what people in Connecticut and anywhere else that isn't Georgia. So basically, you know, anywhere else in the forty nine states that someone might be listening to this podcast, uh, what what should people that want to do what they can in Georgia, what should people be doing? That's such a great question. The energy that Democrats have had to sustain over the last four years is the new status quo. There is no alternative to winning these hard elections, speaking to voters who maybe have never heard from a Democrat or maybe never heard a compelling message from a Democrat. Like doing that hard work has to continue from here into perpetuity. Um, and I hope Democrats have learned that lesson. I think after Obama won, a lot of Democrats thought, okay, we won. <laughs> That's that. We've crossed some sort of invisible finish line, and now we don't have to worry about that anymore. And we learned that is surely not the case. This is no finish line. Um, it's the everyday work. So there is Vote Save America, which has been specifically targeting these types of races through the 2020 election. And now they're shifting their whole machine into these two runoffs. So I would check them out. They're fantastic. Uh, I'll give a plug for another podcast, which is Pod Save America. I don't know if you guys listen to them, but they're, they're if, you want a, if you want a perspective of a partisan hack, they're pretty good. <laughs> and um, they'll be channeling people, I think, to uh, calling if you're willing to go there, I'm sure they have um, field operations, probably postcard writing. And then I think they also work in conjunction with Stacey Abrams, who is working to register voters, which is such important work. And that is hard work. There's no shortcut to that kind of work. You have to be there and physically helping people figure out how to register to vote. Um, so I would look up those two organizations. Um, is Stacey's uh, vote fight win? I think that might be Stacey Abrams organization and um, Vote Save America. If you're here in Connecticut, I would recommend looking up 203 Action. They are an incredibly organized, energized, mobilized group of people who will be phone banking and texting in Georgia. So that's an easy thing you can do. Texting especially is very impactful. You kind of can't not read a text message, right? It just pops up. So you can avoid a phone call, but a text message you're, you get. And you can do it from your couch as you're watching TV. It's, it's, it's great and impactful. Um, so I would also recommend looking up 203 Action. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. those are those both. Uh, Vote Save America has been especially helpful, I think, in... in the national scope, but uh, two or three action I had never heard of, so I'm I'm very glad that uh, I now know about that. And uh, yeah, and the, the two websites for the for the uh, candidates uh, specifically are WarnockForGeorgia.com and ElectJohn.com. 
Uh, I keep typing in election.com, thinking that's what it is, forgetting that it's a J instead of an I. But uh, but yeah, so so thank you for that. Uh, and I think that's I think that's all we have for the interview. Uh, I'd like to congratulate you again on being the first Democrat to flip your seat in over a decade. <laughs> thank so you so much. That's incredibly impressive. Uh, Ballotpedia does not have any records of of Democrats ever being on the on that that spot. So <laughs> yeah, it's really been cool. a it's been a little over a decade, I believe. Yes. Incredible. Yes, thank yeah. you so much. We've learned a lot from you. It's, yes, it's a you. great opportunity. Thanks for having me. I think, and thanks for doing what you guys are doing. Uh, I am always appreciative of people helping to shed light on these what otherwise seem like unexciting down ballot races and help people understand why they matter for their lives. And the truth is that these unexciting down ballot races are actually more impactful to your life really than even the president um, in terms of your day-to-day -day life. So, so thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for uh, in advance for the service that you're going to be giving to the state uh, come January 6th, I think is the, is the date or. Uh... Yeah. And Sam, you're my constituent now. So I hope <laughs> yeah. you out with any questions, concerns, ideas, because, I'm going to be sending Sam my questions and concerns <laughs> too, and he'll relay he'll relay them to you as well. <laughs> Perfect. I look forward to it. Uh, before we before we let you go, I just want to ask Katie, uh, who is your who is your um, state uh, state representative? We have Sean Scanlon. Um, okay. He's amazing. Um, yes. So Sean's great. I have a great Sean Scanlon story, but I won't. <laughs> I won't keep you. <laughs> it can be for next time. Maybe for next time. If you want to come back, you are always welcome. So thank you. Yes, thank you. Okay, so now that we've covered the today portion of elections and that topic, uh, let's go into the history portion. So we've compiled a bunch of uh, a bunch of elections. We've got five here that we're going to talk about. Um, it's just the two of us now. And uh, and yeah, so Katie, uh, do you want to say something before we get into our uh, our elections list? I'm I'm excited. Um, some of these are you know really well known. I think some of you will know what they are, but some of them are also a little more obscure. So hopefully, you learn something new. Yeah. So I'll start. Uh, the first one we want to talk about. I guess there's an honorable mention first. Um, George Washington. It's pretty commonly known he won, quote unquote, unanimously. Uh, I want people to know that um, unanimous does not mean that every American voted for him. Uh, he won. He won with an unanimous electoral a unanimous unanimous new word a unanimous electoral vote count, uh, and most of the states didn't even have popular votes, so he barely was voted in actually. But uh, but yeah, so the first the first real election that we want to talk about is the election of 1800. And the election of 1800, this kind of set the stage for it, was the third uh, the third time we had a new president. And it was eventually, uh, the new president was, was uh, Thomas Jefferson. And um, it was also the first time that we had a different party on the throne, uh, or in the White House, sorry. Uh, <laughs> kind of feels like a throne when you look back to the, early, the earlier presidents. But, uh, so first you have um, George Washington, who was uh, independent and did not believe in partisan politics, but 
really along the party lines of the Federalists, which were the um, kind of the, or I want to, I guess if you could say kind of the Democrats of the day, the, the urban establishment, very centered in the North, um, very financially focused. Uh, and then you have the, the actual, the Democratic Republicans who would emerge in this election, which were led by the strict constructionists, who are basically the Amy Tony Barrett's of the day. Uh, and Antonin Scalia, basically, that's where Antonin Scalia got his uh, his ideology from these strict constructionists. And those would be led by the likes of Thomas Jefferson, his successor, James Madison, and uh, other, other people from the South. Now, um, this election was John Adams, who was a Federalist and the original Vice President to George Washington, as well as um, Thomas Jefferson, and a few other candidates. You had Aaron Burr, who obviously has become famous by uh, Leslie Odom Jr.'s portrayal of him, but also uh, before that, pretty much just famous for the fact that he killed Alexander Hamilton. Uh, Aaron Burr running as a Democratic Republican. You had Jefferson running as a Democratic Republican. You had Adams running as a Federalist and basically, you know, the favorite to win because he had been in the White House. Uh, and um, what ended up happening was. Adams, who had won for four years, who had, who, had, who had been president for four years, did not have a very successful four years. And uh, basically, do you want to talk about why he didn't have a successful four years? Yeah, so essentially, we, we have two, two big events that happened during um, Adams' administration. Um, one being, you know, the Alien and Sedition Acts, and the other being the Ex- XYZ affairs. Um, so we've talked about the Alien Sedition Acts before, so I'm not going to go like super deep into it, but it essentially limited what could be portrayed in, in the media when talking about the government. Um, it, it, put, it put limits on, you know, um, discourse regarding the government. And so, so there is some, you know, controversy within that. And then um, the XYZ affair was coined, it's a term coined to be a quasi-war, um, but it essentially led to tensions between America and France, and just like, it, it was just international turmoil that, you know, started brewing during, you know, Adams's administration. So, essentially, we have these, these two separate, you know, you know, phenomenon that, that kind of work together to weaken Adams and, you know, sort of, like, cut his political, um, not like authority, but credibility. Um, I think that these two events sort of, sort of just weaken his, his position. And when you have two um, Democratic Republicans who are strong candidates in and of themselves, um, you know, we sort of see Adams, like, fall to the wayside, so. Mm-hmm. So now that we have the background, uh, if you look at what happened in the actual election, uh, we had a very different way of electing the president at the time. Uh, we still had the Electoral College, but we had two votes, which still don't really understand why. There were, every elector had two votes for president, and um, the vice president and presidential ticket was the same ticket. So basically, the second the second place person that would win, that would come in second. So for example, 
Donald Trump, the second place person in the 2020 election, uh, would become the vice would become the vice president. Uh, and as you can probably tell, for example, if we had a election today and Joe Biden got first and Donald Trump got second, that wouldn't be a very good uh, four years because I don't think Joe Biden and Donald Trump agree on much. And that's kind of the same thing that would happen in the 1800 where we have Burr and Jefferson uh, uh, who were from the same party, even though Burr really, you know, if you've seen Hamilton, pretty accurate. Burr just kind of was an opportunist and went where, you know, where he could fit in. Uh, they didn't really agree on much. Burr was seen as more um, more centrist. Uh, Jefferson was more radical. It's not, you know, incredibly radical for the day, but definitely on definitely on us on a side because he had kind of created that side and um they got the same amount of electoral votes and you're probably wondering wow that's that's kind of cool you know how did that happen well that's what happens when every elector has two votes for president <laughs> so you know if they've been pledged to vote for a certain party well they're going to do one vote for one one vote for the other and then you're going to get the same amount of votes for two presidents and because of that, and this is why this is an important election, we have that it goes to the House of Representatives and Thomas Jefferson is declared the winner. In the process that was talked about recently because people were afraid this would happen here if we got a 269-269 electoral vote, uh, it goes to the House and uh, House delegations count. So they get one vote each. Um, and basically each state, each, each state gets one vote and Jefferson was declared the winner by the states. Now, um, this immediately prompted, you know, reform in the Constitution because <laughs> it was really stupid <laughs> that there were two electors, uh, and that's why we have the 12th Amendment. So the 12th Amendment is splitting the ticket. You vote for vice president, you vote for president, um, and since then we've had running mates where presidential candidate, candidates and vice presidential candidates are two separate things. They don't have to compete against each other. They can team up. And that is what has happened ever since. Yeah, I think that this election is very interesting because, you know, we're still very, very much into the early stages of, you know, United States history. And within that, this is one of the first elections that exposes sort of the the flaws in in the system thus far and so that's that's why we see you know this amendment pop up because the the system that they had in place just didn't make sense um you know as you alluded to sam so i, I think that if if you take away anything from the election of 1800 it's that you know it, it reveals the flaw one of the flaws that you know was was a result of a system that was created but we're still early in history so it's not very very much put into practice yet. Um, and so we see these flaws kind of come to the surface. Um, I will say it is okay. interesting. Oh, sorry, can I just say one thing before? Yeah, we yeah. I will say it is kind of interesting how they viewed this flaw of the, the Electoral College having two votes as something that needed to be amended immediately, but didn't actually realize that the Electoral College itself was the flaw that created this. Like, because like without the Electoral College, it would have been a popular vote and Jefferson would have won. Like, we wouldn't have had to deal with any of this shenanigans. We wouldn't have had to deal with, with the House. We wouldn't have had to deal with making an amendment. It's just, the Electoral College is, has always been the problem. It's just people right. don't like to confront that. <laughs> right. 
I, that's a that's a perfect transition into the election of 1824, actually, because, you know, in that election, Andrew Jackson was running against um, John Quincy Adams. And there were a couple other you know candidates, not not as important. Um, but essentially, Andrew Jackson won a plurality of both the popular and the electoral vote. But he did not become president. Um, this is one of the you know, this is the only case that I, you know, have heard of where a president, you know, wins both the popular and electoral college vote, and they don't become president. Um, there are many cases where a president has won the popular vote, and they have not won the electoral, no, they've won the electoral college, no, wait. Yeah. Edit electoral that college, but not the they won the popular vote, but <laughs> lost the electoral college, so they wouldn't become president. That, there's many cases where that has happened. Sorry, like, I was like, confusing the the tune in my head um and so there are many cases like that where they win the popular vote but they don't you know win that electoral college um andrew jackson he won both but he didn't become president um and this is sort of because of like four crucial you know elements um there's the nomination of candidates um there's the popular election of electors there's the electoral college and then there's the election of the president in the house when no candidate received um a majority in the electoral college so this is this election the election of 1824 is the first time where no candidate ran as a federalist and the there were five significant candidates who competed as you know democratic republicans um nobody had received a majority of the votes in the electoral college um but but andrew jackson had the most like votes out of everyone in the electoral college but he still you know didn't um receive that majority um because no one had received that majority the house of representatives were the ones to choose between the top two candidates which were um jackson and john quincy adams um, and so at the time, Henry Clay was the Speaker of the House of Representatives. And so he um, he was the one who basically had to had to decide what was going to happen. Um, it's important to note, very important to note that Clay was not a fan of Andrew Jackson. He did not want Andrew Jackson to to win this election. And so he he secured the victory um, for John Quincy Adams. And in return, Clay was um, nominated or, you know, he was entrusted the title of Secretary of State. And at the time, the Secretary of State was a was a position that basically, you know, ensured the presidency or was a huge like factor in determining like who was the next president. It was a very important decision or position at the time. And so Jackson was obviously a very popular candidate and the, the Jacksonians um, at the time, they deemed this alliance between Adams and Clay um, to be corrupt, you know, and it was a result of this corrupt system where, you know, elite people in government pursue their own interests and do not follow the, you know, will of the people. This, this corrupt system, you know, continues today, whereas we see, you know, people win the Electoral College, but it's not necessarily what the american people wanted the most because he wasn't the most voted um candidate didn't win the popular vote already talked about that but essentially that's what happens it's coined the corrupt bargain it's corrupt everyone you know 
you know, had some sort of benefit. You know, we have um, Quincy Adams, who, you know, wins the presidency, and then Clay gets this important position that could lead to the presidency, the next one. Um, and so the Jacksonians were upset. And then we eventually see Andrew Jackson become president at a later point in time. Yeah, and he, he definitely rode that wave. He definitely, you know, he became this this very populist person who, you know, was quote unquote for the people and he was just against corruption and against, you know, the establishment. And this just fueled that fire and he won four years later. So speaking of um, populist candidates, <clears throat> probably the most popular and probably most famous populist candidate of all time was Teddy Roosevelt, who Teddy Roosevelt was incredibly famous, uh, probably one of probably one of the most well-known, well-liked presidents. Um, and we have Teddy Roosevelt was president for the better part of eight years. He originally became president because uh, William McKinley was killed, and then he won his own term. Now, I want to kind of first clear this up. Because of his cousin, 30 years later, uh, they would implement laws about running for a third term. Uh, and this was not a term, this was not a law yet. So you could run for as many presidential terms as possible, but there was kind of an unwritten rule that because George Washington had stepped down after his second term, which while we do kind of, you know, while his justification was that he wanted to set a precedent, the man was dying. So, you know, who really knows? But um, this precedent that had been set of, of the two-term president um, by George Washington had never been broken but um, Roosevelt served out two terms. So he serves out two terms, and then his protege, William Howard Taft, who the only person ever to be chief justice and president, and we talk about people holding multiple positions in, in government, but the first, the only person, and probably ever, the only, probably the only person that will ever hold, hold both of these titles, the chief justice and the president, William Howard Taft, was the protege of Teddy Roosevelt. And, um, for four years, he was, he was the Republican president, and he wasn't incredibly well-liked, um, especially by Teddy Roosevelt. So this would be like, for example, if, I don't know, Ronald Reagan ran for eight years, was president for eight years, and then his protege, George Bush, uh, was to be president for four years and then wasn't well-liked by the people and then was beat because a third a third party candidate injected himself into the race and uh, stole some votes from him. Well, not stole some votes, but stole some vote share. And well, sure enough, the same thing happened where a third party candidate, obviously I was talking about Ross Perot at the time uh, with the Clinton election. Um, but this happened where the election was against Woodrow Wilson, who was the Democratic candidate, um, William Howard Taft, who was the incumbent Republican, and Teddy Roosevelt, who was the third party candidate and came back for a third, a third cup of tea. And Teddy Roosevelt uh, founded his own party because this was a time uh, when primaries didn't exist, uh, or at least if they did, they were very minimal. And he founded his own party known as the Progressive Party, which we're starting to see progressives today. Uh, we've been seeing them for a while now, actually. But, you know, they don't they don't go away this is a progressive progressive movements have been around for a very long time and they, they should be here to stay but um so he founds the progressive party which is more well known as the bull moose party because that was his nickname and he was incredibly popular like he was teddy roosevelt 
at the time he was just this beloved guy who went on to win 88 electoral votes which is a huge amount for a non uh, a non-major party candidate uh, Wilson went on to win 435 electoral votes and if you do the math at the time that means that Taft the incumbent president at the time won eight electoral votes which will never happen again <laughs> Yeah, when you when you said that, when you told me that when we were we were prepping, I was like, eight? That's that's a that's a clear cut loss here for, for poor Taft. Um but yeah, that that the likelihood of that happening again. Very, very slim. Very slim, yeah. And the eight electoral votes and um not only did he get eight, eight electoral votes, I just think it's really interesting that he won those electoral votes in two states that could not be more different. He won Vermont, and then he won Utah, which, like, maybe they were different at the time. Maybe 1912 Vermont and Utah were a different situation as they are now. But, but yeah, and I think the, you know, if anything, if you can take anything away from the 1912 elections, it basically just outlines the need, and I mean, you know, hindsight is 2020, uh, but it outlines the need for primaries and a, uh, a nomination process because this never would happen today. Um, if, if this would happen today, what would end up, well, first of all, Roosevelt wouldn't be allowed to run, uh, but also um, even if it was a different candidate that was just really popular, like for example, if uh, Michelle Obama were to run, like let's say, I mean, I'm not saying Michelle Obama would win a primary, but let's say, and I, I, th I definitely think she would get some electoral votes or like, let's say uh, Michelle Obama wanted to be president and didn't think Joe Biden was, was competent to be president, which I, I think she very much does because, you know, they're friends and I'm not saying that she does, but I'm, I just thought of a popular democratic figure. Um, actually, not Michelle Obama, let's say Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton is, is a better example uh, because she would be eligible and she has a much more political history. Hillary Clinton decides to run in the general election um, and, takes and takes a lot of democratic votes away from Joe Biden. That just wouldn't happen. Hillary Clinton, if she wanted to unseat Joe Biden, would have run in the primary. And <clears throat> because there were no primaries at the time, and Roosevelt, his only way of, of having a chance at the presidency was to run in the general election. Uh, that's what you get. You split the ticket. Woodrow Wilson becomes president. And that's a very pivotal presidency. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, it's crazy that 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 election led to to such a, you know, it it's just the fact that that a candidate who like wasn't a part of, you know, the traditional like two party like they they had you know that potential to, to steal a lot of those votes. It talks. It's kind of this idea that, you know, to connect it to today, people were people were nervous about about you know other people running or like you know, anything that wasn't a vote for Biden was a vote for Trump. Like, it's kind of like not the exact, like, mm -hmm. connection to this idea, but it's this idea that, you know, people do have the, have the influence to, to steal, steal, in quotes, the election. But again, like, because people nominate through this primary process, um, you know, it's sort of safeguarded. Again, one of those one of those weaknesses that we see in in the system, and that's where it leads to change. Um, crazy. Yeah.
And yeah, I just I just want to because I think Katie you made a good point with the with the quotes. Uh, we we see each other on on the uh, the Webex call, but I do want to I do want to um, make it clear to people listening that yeah, when when I said steal the election, uh, I personally do believe that uh, any anybody running for president is valid. Uh, you know, people are people are complaining about Judge Jorgensen running and stealing votes from either one of the candidates, and. This is a short comment on this, uh, and you could comment after if you if you want to. But I think you know, people that vote for Joe Jorgensen aren't the problem. It's the people that don't vote that are the problem. Like, if you're going to participate in the election process, like you're already doing what you need to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, on that same note, like voter turnout is very important. Like yes. we like we saw in in 2016, and I'm sure as we've seen in you know other elections throughout history. Like turnout really determines the outcome of an election, mm -hmm. um, you know, because turnout also determines, you know, someone could win. I guess, I mean, like turnout also like wouldn't be as much of a problem if the Electoral College wasn't a thing, because it would just be whoever comes out to vote, whoever gets the most votes, they win, period. But, you know, turnout, turnout works to to ensure like and safeguard what's happening in the electoral college you know without turnout you can like see the election take a you know elections take a very different course because you know they you need like a certain a combination of electoral votes and electoral or and states to win so turnout's so important because of the electoral college but like say if we didn't have the electoral college turnout would still be important but it would just be whoever won you know but i'm i'm rambling now so Totally fine, though. I, I totally agree. So uh, I think, you know, we were getting really lucky with these these picks. We decided to make it chronological uh, with the five the five elections that we chose, but um, they're actually segueing into each other really well. So obviously the 1912 election, I said, you know, the existence of primaries would have been necessary to make it a lot more smooth. Um, I'm not saying that Woodrow Wilson wasn't a bad president. I personally probably would have voted for him, <laughs> but um, I think, you know, if we wanted to have the two-party system there where, where Roosevelt didn't just kind of doom the Republican Party, uh, a primary would have kind of solved that. And this this election, the 1968 election, which we're going to talk about next, and we're kind of we're kind of lumping uh, what we're referring to as the Nixon years into one thing because uh, we really had six elections that we wanted to talk about. And the 1968 election was between... Uh, no incumbents, because um, I'll explain why in a second, but it was it was Nixon versus Hubert Humphrey. But that election was a landslide victory for Richard Nixon, and that's not why what I'm here to talk about. <laughs> so the first thing I want to talk about is uh, JFK was the president and who won in 60 against Richard Nixon. And obviously, you know, if you live in America, you probably know how that story ends. JFK was tragically murdered in November of 1963. His vice president, uh, Lyndon Johnson of Texas, became the president. And um, they, you know, they, they were from the same party, but they, they very much disagreed on a lot of things. And Lyndon Johnson made some good decisions, uh, you know, landmark decisions. He signed the Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, you know, good things that he did. But also he, you know... Kind of pushed us further and further into the Vietnam War. Because of this, uh, the Vietnam War was very unpopular by the by the people. 
especially young people. And this kind of this pressure that he was getting from the general public kind of pushed him to not run again. And he was never he was never elected president. I don't know if he ever really wanted to be president. Um, and this this really kind of pushed him over the edge. And he said, I will not pursue a second term. So he decides not to run. And um, that leaves a hole open. That leaves, you know, a, a democratic hole open. And it's a really difficult and, and deep democratic hole because the Democratic Party has set this example of, of supporting the Vietnam War. So um, basically, anybody that is going to succeed, anybody that's going to succeed Johnson is going to have this huge burden of solving the problem. I mean, e either party is going to have this burden of solving the problem, but also the Democrat, if the Democrat wins, will have to deal with Johnson's baggage. So what we have is a split nomination process. And you have Eugene McCarthy uh, and Robert F. Kennedy, obviously the brother of the deceased president, uh, were campaigning in primary states. And I wanna, I wanna say this, um, when you hear primary states today, you usually think any state that isn't Iowa or, oh crap, I don't, South Carolina? All, all I know on the top of my head is Iowa. It's there's one other one. It's Iowa and oh, it's Nevada. It's Nevada. Um, everyone's everyone's favorite uh, slow vote counter. Uh, <laughs> but um, it's Iowa and Nevada, and you think, oh, those are the ones that aren't the primary states because the other ones all have primaries. Well, that's that was not the case for a long time. Uh, primaries were kind of this new fad that were coming into popularity and coming out of obscurity eventually, and and. Um, even caucuses, which now we consider to be this obsolete practice, were, were kind of a new thing. And, uh, or at least a new thing in the fact that, that the public were taking part in choosing the president, or choosing the nominee. The nominee. And <clears throat> Eugene McCarthy and RFK are all about this. They want the public to choose. They want, you know, they, they, they want their nominee to be what the, the people want, which... Honestly, in a part where the people are really mad at this party, like in a, in a time when the people are really mad at this party, that's a really good idea. Like, I'm sorry, like that's a really good idea. Um, and the other candidate that's running is Hubert Humphrey, who is uh, you know, a career politician. He's run on a bunch of tickets. Uh, I believe he actually lost the nomination in 1962 JFK. And Hubert Humphrey was the vice president at the time. He was, he was um, LBJ's vice president. And he ran in all the non-primary states. So he was basically just trying to get the, the, the political, you know, establishment bureaucracy to just vote for him. It's the, the nowadays equivalent of superdelegates. We got rid of superdelegates, kind of. We, we moved them to a second slate. So it's a little better now. But think of superdelegates as like an entire state would just be made up of superdelegates that they would just send to the DNC. And obviously, sadly, again, you know, it's the Kennedy curse. RFK was killed um, in June as he was winning the primaries. So he had just he had just won California and he was killed at his victory speech or right after his victory speech. And this basically left Eugene McCarthy as the, the presumptive winner. And, you know, obviously that's a sad thing to say because, you know, I'm sure Eugene McCarthy didn't feel good about that, 
but he was, you know, not trailing far too far behind. And he was, you know, he had the most primary votes of anybody that was still alive. So he goes to the he goes to the uh, the DNC feeling pretty good about himself. Hubert Humphrey goes to the DNC feeling pretty good about himself. But the people don't know that because he hasn't talked to the people at all. So big shocker. Hubert Humphrey is declared the Democratic nominee in 1968. And the people who have just seen Eugene McCarthy win a ton of states are really mad about that. And you get riots. And because of the riots, uh, the DNC has a lot of cops come in and there's a lot of, you know, it's bad. It's, it's late 1960s police suppression that you see a lot of, you know, whether it's in the South or it's at Kent State or it's it, it's it's just that era of of suppression of of protesters and it's not good and this tension in the democratic party allows richard nixon to take a landslide victory over hubert humphrey who would still be the nominee even after the riots and nixon becomes the president in 68 so that goes into what katie wants to talk about with the second half of the nixon years and tell Watergate. us about Watergate. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So the Watergate scandal began, I'm going to say began in quotes, um, on June 17th, 1972. Essentially, people, some burglars, were arrested um, in the office of the Democratic National Committee, which is located in the Watergate complex um, in Washington, D.C. So these people, these burglars, um, were connected to Nixon's re-election campaign, um, the election of 1972, and they had been caught wiretaping, wiretapping, sorry, phones and sealing some documents. However, so they, they were caught on June 17th, but it is very interesting and important to note because I didn't even know this, I don't think you knew this, Sam, either, but actually in May 1972, so the month before, um, members of, you know, Nixon's committee to reelect, um, him, the president, you know, they had already like broken into the DNC, um, Watergate headquarters, but so they, so essentially we see that, you know, they broke in in May and they, they broke in in June because the wiretaps had failed to work properly in May. So they, they went back to the building a month later to get the information again stupid of them yes um and so i just thought that was really interesting so they get caught on june 17th and this you know launches watergate this this you know breaks into you know some some very political um you know corruption so we see in august you know a couple months later nixon gives a speech and he like swears that his white house staff was not involved in the break-in which we we know not to be the case but most voters believed him by saying that, you know, he had no connection to it. And he was reelected in a landslide victory, which he pulled it off, like, good for him, I guess. But, you know, he really didn't pull it off because, you know, um, he, you know, was soon, you know, later found out that, you know, he did have some involvement and, you know, he really dug himself, you know, into a deeper and deeper hole. Um, essentially, he planned to instruct the CIA to impede the FBI's investigation of the crime. So we have these two huge, you know, federal agencies, CIA versus FBI and all of this, um, 
of this confusing things, all of the confusing things. Um, but essentially, you know, Nixon is caught red-handed. He he had some tapes that you know he recorded in the Oval Office that essentially said what he did um, and what he instructed these these burglars or whatever you would like to call them to do. And so, you know, he tried to save his butt by saying, I don't need to turn over the tapes because of executive privilege. Um, I do not need to to release them. These are private conversations. The American public doesn't need to know about them. Um, he he fired a lot of people um, because they they had, you know, started to to speak out. And so he fired them. That was known in as an event um, entitled the Saturday Night Massacre. Um, and so he, you know, eventually was, you know, brought to his downfall. Um, the tapes, you know, provided that undeniable evidence um, in, you know, his involvement with Watergate. And, you know, many people believe Nixon to be impeached. That, however, is not the case. He he resigned before anything could really, you know, happen, before he could be impeached and, you know, kicked out of office. Um, so. Essentially, he resigns and then is pardoned by Gerald Ford. Um, Sam, I know you have some thoughts on that pardon if you want to like talk about that. But that's sort of what happens. He, you know, leaves the presidency and then is pardoned, and history goes on. Yeah. So yeah, I've just talked about Gerald Ford on the podcast before, where I think that you know his his sole job was to do that. Uh, he fell on the sword, and then that kind of ruin his political credibility um only president to ever not be elected even as a vice president and then he lost to jimmy carter who was a very very outlier democrat <laughs> like very outlier georgia peanut farmer running as a democrat and he won uh because you know nixon won because a lot of people really hated the democrats and then Carter won for the exact same reason on the on the other side, uh, but yeah. So um, I know we've kind of you know woven a few themes into this uh, into this podcast about like what we're talking about, and I think the last election really kind of all of them come to a head where it comes to you know specifically electoral college, and we see some problems with elections. Uh, yeah. So you want to get us started on Bush v. Gore? <laughs> Yeah, we can kind of just like both both talk about it. Um, yeah. Essentially, this was the election of 2000. Um, it was Al Gore versus, um, versus George W. Bush. Um, you know, so we see this election that, you know, has very, very close results. There were only 537 votes that separated Gore and Bush. So essentially you know in the weeks following the election this is this is very interesting to talk about right now because you know we thought that waiting you know a couple of days for the 2020 outcome was a lot but it took 36 days um to to really sort all of this out um in that 36 days that followed gore had won the popular vote by 543,000 895 votes um but you know we we know that we don't care the, about the popular vote at this point uh, we only care about that electoral college vote um so essentially the 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 issue the issue with this election was that at the time 
there was this thing called a butterfly ballot. And essentially, it led to confusion about what people were actually voting for. Many voters were confused as to how to fill it out. And so what we see is we see, um, you know, this is a visually confusing paper. And on this ballot, there are two columns with candidates' names that are separated by a middle column, which, you know, is where you're supposed to mark what candidate you vote for. And so p voters were so confused that there there were some Gore votes that went to candidate Pat Buchanan, and that was due to a misalignment of names and marks. So there's this issue of a very confusing ballot where people do not know exactly where to mark off for who. So it's very difficult to determine, you know, who 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 was who were people voting for? What was their actual intent? Um, what was truly a vote that was intentional? What was something that was a mistake due to misalignment of names and marks? So we have that very confusing factor to begin with. Um, the main issue that was at you know stake was that some of the holes in the ballot were not you know completely punched out. So so they're referred to as hanging chads. Um, this is what the this term is used for. The way I like to think about it is if you if you go to like hole punch a paper and like it, the hole punch doesn't like go through all the way, and so you have like this little like half crescent thing on the top and bottom, but like the like there's an indication that you're looking to hole punch, but it's not punched through all the way. So we have a lot of ballots that are you know victim to these hanging chads. Um, we have a very tight race in Florida, like almost tied. Um, and you know, in Florida, this is where a lot of those hanging chads come in, where where the where the hole just wasn't punched through all the way. And so, essentially, what happens is there is no simple way between the confusion of the butterfly ballot and between the confusion of what is considered a counting vote when we have all of these hanging chads holes that weren't punched through all the way like what counts and what doesn't. So we have many compounding factors that that just work against, you know, being able to accurately call the election. So we see that it, it gets thrown to the Supreme Court and in Bush v. Gore, um, Bush is determined to be the next president. And we, you know, essentially see, you know, this election come to an end um again this is you know one of the many instances i think that like common theme here you can speak more to it sam is that there are clear like flaws in our democracy and our democratic process and you know some of these elections just clearly highlight those weaknesses clearly highlight those things that are not you know clear cut in what we've decided. Our, our democracy is very complex. Our, our election process is very complex. And so it leads to a ton of confusion and it leads to very controversial outcomes at points in history. And um, even, you know, we even see now, it's clear that Joe Biden won, but we see now how, how does, how does mail-in votes, you know, play, uh, play a role. And I would like to think that the difference is with the with the mail-in ballots, you can clearly tell who someone voted for. It's not like it's a butterfly ballot where like it's it's kind of like controversial. Like what who did they intend to vote for? 
mail-in ballots, it's like clear. It's clear who you, you've intended to vote for. And I think that that's why, in my opinion, there's not really much concern for anything to happen after, you know, after, you know, Joe Biden won. There's no, there's no reason, you know, to really bring it to the Supreme Court, in my opinion, because, you know, there's no compounding factors. You can clearly tell who voted for what. Um, and, you know, that's that. I mean, we, you know, we just see in 2000, these, these very, you know, combined with the confusing ballot and combined with, you know, who's voting really for what. Um, that's why it, there was just no way to call the election, period. Um, and I think the difference between this one and 2000 is that no state has a 537 margin. Like Joe Biden is winning by a lot more in every state that could possibly flip. And, and yeah, and I think another thing that I want to talk about, because I know we're talking about, you know, the Electoral College failing, with the exception of 2004, and I never really thought about this, with the exception of 2004, which was a close election, especially for an incumbent election, Republicans have not won the popular vote since 1988, which crazy. it's like, you know, it makes sense when you think about it because Clinton had two terms and Obama had two terms and Trump obviously lost the popular vote and Bush lost the popular vote. But like, that's crazy. Like, I know, like, you know, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren uh, informed us all that 1990 was 30 years ago. Uh, <laughs> so we now know that, yeah, yeah. So 32 years ago was the last time, other than, was the last time that a, a non-incumbent Republican won the popular vote, which is insane. Uh, yeah. It's, it's really insane because it's like when you, like, I don't know if, you know, you've seen these sort of, um, you know, funny remarks, Sam, but like, there are a lot of like, memes of people in other countries, like looking at our democratic process, and it's being like, <laughs> only in America, can it can we have a clear cut winner that doesn't win? Or like, you're sitting on the edge of your seat, because you're not sure the outcome. I, you know, I think that the Electoral College was something that was created to, to sort of safeguard democracy at a time where people weren't as educated, arguably. Education is now something that's available to everyone. Everyone has access to, for the most part, you know, we have this widespread use of technology. What? I said, you said education is available to everyone, and I said, well, debatably. <laughs> well, debatably, yeah. Like, well, well, we're talking, like, education, but, like, I'm not, I'm not saying, like, equitable. Like, right. that, that is, yeah, yes. Yeah, some, at least some, some form, some form of education is available to most people, mm -hmm. whether it be a formal education, whether it be access to technology and search engines and, and, you know, um, you know, news reporting, um, you know, sites like education comes in many forms is what I'm trying to say. Whether it's equitable, we, we know for a fact that it's not. Um, but, you know, the Electoral College was meant to, you know, safeguard because people didn't have that, that education back then. They didn't have the internet where they could just look up what Gore v. Bush was or Bush v. Gore. You know, it's, why is it needed? That's, that's my question now. Why is it needed today? <laughs> that's kind of what Sam and I have been, you know, contemplating for, you know, the past couple weeks. Um, we encourage everyone to contemplate it because when you have a popular when you have a popular vote 
and they don't win you know the electoral college is it really representative of what the people wanted because it's the less popular candidate um something to consider something i'll always think about yeah i think uh you know me you and hillary clinton <laughs> yeah yes yes <laughs> and and al gore definitely al gore i think you know i haven't seen him in the political sphere in a long time but i'm sure he still thinks about how you know what if but, uh, but yeah, so that was a, you know, it was a really fun episode to make. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Thank you again to uh, Congresswoman-elect Leeper for coming on and having a great conversation with us. And uh, yeah, so uh, thank you for bearing with us on the, the extra week we, we needed to put this together for the, the election episode. But uh, yeah, so we will be back next week. And thank you for listening. Have a great week.